0: Hello and welcome back to the Simply Christian Life. My name is Michael Hun, and in addition to being the host of your podcast, I also am the bishop of the Diocese of the Rio Grande, that beautiful part of the Episcopal Church which encompasses the entire state of New Mexico and the far west part of the state of Texas. It is Lent and we've been reading together the book You Are What You Love by James K. A. Smith. And this episode And the episode following will cover Chapter 3 of Dr. Smith's book. It turns out there's just so much good information in Chapter 3 that instead of producing one long episode, I thought I'd divide Chapter 3 into two shorter episodes. So welcome to Part 1 of Chapter 3. This is Episode 4 of the podcast. And it is Lent, and so we're reading together the book, You Are What You Love, by James K.A. Smith. And this episode covers chapter 3. Uh, here's the chapter title, The Spirit Meets You Where You Are, Historic Worship for a Postmodern Age. But before we dive into chapter 3, I'd like to think with you a little bit about the invitation that we extended at the end of the podcast for chapter 2, At the end of the last episode, we were talking about looking at two of our documents as if they were liturgical registers. You know, the liturgical register is that big book that is in every church where the priest records each liturgical act that happens in the life of a congregation. And uh, we have been looking at uh, two documents of our own lives as a spiritual discipline for Lent. So I'm curious, what did it feel like to pull out your calendar and to look at your calendar, your, your diary, as a liturgical document, a document that includes a record of your loves, the things you love and how you worship? Uh, in, in my looking back, I, you know, I'm in the first few months of my time as Bishop of the Diocese of the Rio Grande, and everybody says the first year in any new job is particularly intense because you've got to meet everybody for the first time. And, and so my diary for the last few months, as I look back through it, I smiled time and time again just to think about the places I have been and the people that I have met in those places as I'm getting to know my new diocese. I also will tell you that as I look back over those few months, I realize that I have spent uh, a lot of time working, and I uh, w- wish that I would have spent some more time uh, with my family. Uh, and, and so we, we're trying to do a good job of observing the Sabbath day. Meg and I, we, we use Monday as our Sabbath day, and um, we are also traveling together as a family as I'm doing my parish visitations, and that time is also really valuable. But I will tell you, as I look back over the last few months and and think about, you know, where are my loves? I'm realizing that uh, I need to spend uh, some more time devoted to my love for my family, and so um, I'm taking that on as a a Lenten thought process. Uh, How can I uh, be more mindful of um, making sure that my love for my family is actually reflected in my liturgical diary? The, the second document we asked uh, that we might look at as a liturgical register is a credit card statement uh, or your um, your your actual expenses, not your budget, but your actual expenses, whether you do that by credit card or your debit card or if you are still using a checkbook as a checkbook register. And I will share with you as I have um, been transitioning into, the the diocese of the Rio Grande, which is my home diocese. This is a this is the place where I was raised up in the church. I was confirmed here as a boy and taught to be an acolyte here in the diocese of the Rio Grande. And so, coming back to serve this diocese as bishop for me has been very much a homecoming. And uh, as I where I'm going with that is as I look at my um, expenses, particularly what what I've what I've spent my personal money on uh, over the past few months i've been realizing that i am getting back in touch with with the west and being um, and living again in New Mexico and Far West Texas. So, so how does that look for me? Well, I bought another pair of cowboy boots <laughs> to supplement my other one, and I'm wearing those boots um, more often than I ever did in the East Coast. Uh, that expense was very much a part of my kind of coming back into this place that I love and uh, adopting, if you will, sort of outward invisible signs of the inward and spiritual joy that is coming home and returning home. And it, it's been kind of amusing for Meg, who who didn't know me when I was a child, of course, and she, she doesn't know this Western part of me, um, but uh, coming back here, I bought a truck, uh, I'm wearing my boots, all the time. Um, I've got a cowboy hat or two, and uh, those are on as well. So as I look back over my expenses for the last few months, I'm realizing just how much of those purchases are actually a reflection of my love for this place and um, my adapting to coming home. And so I'm wondering, what does your calendar tell you if you look at it as a liturgical document, and what does your checkbook. What does your, the record of your expenses tell you about what you love? And uh, perhaps bringing that clearly to mind as a Lenten discipline helps us then to think about, are we loving what we want to love? Or are there expenses in there or ways we're spending our time which are actually shaping our hearts in unhealthy ways? And how might we, uh, how might we adjust to that? That's just a a wrap-up from the previous episode. Now let's dive into chapter 3 of James K.A. Smith's book, You Are What You Love. In chapter 2, Professor Smith was pointing out to us the fact that our secular world, our culture, has a lot of liturgies in it. A liturgy is something we do time and time again that is not only something we do, but it's an activity that shapes our hearts. It does something to us. And you'll remember we spent some time in chapter two talking about the shopping mall or the shopping culture of our American society and how that is in fact shaping our hearts. And so in chapter three, Dr. Smith opens up by uh, talking about our hungry hearts and the way our, um, that, that we need to re habituate our hungers. On page 57, he writes, liturgies, then, are calibration technologies. They train our loves by aiming them toward a certain telos, a certain end. But not all liturgies are created equal. Some miscalibrate our hearts, pointing us off course towards pseudo or rival norths. And this, of course, is what he means when he's talking about the shopping mall experience, that, that it, the, the way we engage in consumer culture is actually shaping our hearts, it's molding our desires, but it's doing so in a way that is not ultimately fulfilling, and in fact is involved in all sorts of things that if we took time to think about it, we might not want to be involved in. And so uh, moving into the chapter, moving into chapter 3, Uh, Dr. Smith um, reminds us that all of us have a hungry heart and that that is written into the Bible, particularly in the prophet Isaiah, where in Isaiah 55 it says, "'Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost.'" He reminds us that uh, jesus said blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled and how jesus said i am the bread of life and in another place he said to the woman at the well if you only knew who you were talking to you would ask for the living water those who drink this water will never thirst and so part of what dr smith is reminding us is that in fact our hungers themselves our appetites are learned and um, the direction our hunger takes, what we are hungry for, what we are thirsting after, really does change the character of our life. And then he starts doing some explanation of how science is showing us that you'll, you'll remember in chapter 2 he said that only about 5% of what we do in a given day is A conscious thought, but most of what our brains do is they turn things into habit. And so when you're brushing your teeth, you're not thinking about brushing your teeth, you're thinking about something else. But your body and your brain are successfully brushing your teeth. When you're driving your car, you're not thinking about, oh, I've got to press down on the gas pedal, I've got to turn on the turn signal. Instead, your body just sort of is naturally doing that kind of as a habit or on autopilot. And Dr. Smith points out here in chapter 3 that the way we eat is almost entirely habit. Meet the needs of our hungers without actually thinking about it. And he spends some of the early part of this chapter reminding us how difficult it is to change our eating habits. He says on page 59, here's the real challenge. It turns out you just can't think your way to new tastes because our eating is sort of by habit. And then he goes in and he tells this wonderful personal story about how he, uh, as, a, as a person his whole life, was kind of a meat and potatoes person and he started reading theologically he started reading wendell berry and started getting concerned about the way animals were being treated in the in terms of the food production systems of our country and he started being very eager to change his eating habits kind of as a moral exercise you know to be more humane and eat more vegetables and that sort of thing. And it corresponded with his doctor saying, hey, you should really eat some green vegetables. It corresponded with his wife changing her eating habits as well and encouraging him for his health and the health of his family to shift. And then he tells this wonderful story about how he uh, was reading one day, he was reading Wendell Berry's book about food. And he was in his heart and in his mind saying, yes, amen, I love you, Wendell Berry, that's exactly what we should be doing. And then he realized, and this is on page 60, as I paused to reflect on a key point and thus briefly took my nose out of the book, an ugly irony suddenly struck me. I was reading Wendell Berry in the food court at Costco. <laughs> Which is a classic, right? Costco is all about the large delivery systems of food process and probably that hot dog he was eating was not a humanely raised uh, grass-fed, you know, kind of um, product but rather was very much a part of the mass food delivery system. And that hot dog probably, if we're honest, was not the healthiest thing that um, Dr. Smith could be eating. And so he uses that as an intro into a conversation about how much of what we do is habit forming and that we can't think our way into a new way of life or a new way of being. We've got to intentionally start to shift our habits. Dr. Smith then goes on to talk about how he then really worked for a number of years to shift what he was hungry for, to change what his taste buds desired by shifting intentionally to eating more vegetables, by changing to exercise. And he talks about how, particularly in the beginning, as he took up running Exercising was just a chore, and it hurt, and it didn't feel right, and it was just a pain. But then over time, he actually found that he not only enjoyed running, but he needed it. That if he was on a business trip and he hadn't exercised or hadn't had a run in a day or two, his legs would twitch and he would feel antsy. He would be yearning for that exercise, which just a number of months before was a chore. And so he talked about how changing our habits in a very gritty, practical way, changing our habits takes work, it takes intention, and it takes focus. And then he shifts our attention, reminding us that what we're talking about here is not how to change our diets, but how to change our worship of God. On page 61, he says, And while the arguments of people like Wendell Wendell Berry and Michael Pollan could be intellectual catalysts for me, epiphanies of insight into how my hunger habits had been deformed, unlearning those habits would require counter-reformative practices, different rhythms and routines that would retrain my hunger. And so Dr. Smith says that if we're going to retrain our hungers, if we're going to refocus our desires, if we're going to make new habits when it comes to what we love and what we worship, if we want to shift God to being more in the center of our lives, we've got to change our habits. And how do we do that? He mentions on page 62, two things that were very important in terms of changing his eating habits. But he does so by analogy to say these two things are important in terms of shifting our loves. So at the top of page 62, he says, First, in an important sense, in order to change my eating habits, I pledged myself to be part of a covenantal community. You've got to be a part of a community. That community that is, is practicing the habits that you yearn to have. I think this is why so many people find attending a gym important because you go to the gym and you're surrounded by other people who are at the gym working on their health. And uh, this is why groups like Weight Watchers are so helpful because when you go to Weight Watchers, you actually are with a number of other people who are encouraging you and helping you shift your habits. It's why programs like AA are so important. Because if we're going to change our habits, uh, a friend of mine who was in AA said, you've got to change your playgrounds, you've got to change your playmates if you're going to change your habits. And so if we're moving away from being focused on or addicted to one set of behaviors and we want to learn how to adapt to being focused on some healthier behaviors, if we want to shift God to the center of our life, we've got to be engaged with a community that is focused on God as the center of life. And it is through that community that our life might actually change. Second, he says, um, in order to reform my wants, I would commit myself to practices that I did not want to do. I submitted myself to new disciplines. I apprenticed myself to new regimens of eating and exercise. And so Dr. Smith is reminding us that these two things are necessary for us to change our habits. First, we've got to be a part of a community of support. And second, part of changing your habits is doing things you don't want to do. Why do we have to do things we don't want to do to change a habit? Because so much of what we do, we're not thinking about. And this is where Lent comes in. This is where our Lenten disciplines come in. Lent is an annual exercise for 40 days of refining our habits, turning towards true north, reacquainting ourselves with God, taking on new worship habits, taking on new disciplines of prayer, giving up those habits which are shaping us in different ways or or focusing us in different ways. So, for example, some people in Lent give up shopping for the whole month. They may buy groceries and milk and stuff like that, but no new clothes. So no eBay, no, uh, no Amazon. By detaching themselves from the habitual purchasing of things, people during Lent may be shifting their attention more on God. Even if you're giving up chocolate or coffee, you may be doing so in order to let go of the things you use to get through the day in a habitual way, and then every time you have a yearning for chocolate or a yearning for dessert or a yearning for coffee, you refocus your mind on God. And we use in Lent these disciplines of intentionally doing things we don't want to do, not as some kind of New Year's resolution situation, but rather as a way of consciously reforming our lives, rehabituating ourselves in order to engage more in having God at the center of our lives. And you know, I've practiced a number of different things over Lent that, that have become part of my regular life. I would say about 10 years ago, I was a total news radio junkie. I listened to NPR from the moment I woke up until the moment I went to sleep, just about. It wasn't on in my office, but when I would be, I would get out of bed and I'd put the breakfast on, be working on breakfast with my kids, and I would have NPR on, listening to Morning Edition, and then in my car. So I was driving the kids to school or as I was going to work, I would listen to it. Every time I was driving to visit a parishioner, I would have NPR on in the car, and then on my way home, I'd listen to it. And I would listen to, you know, some of those great programs in the evening as well, after the kids were in bed. And so for Lent one year, I gave up NPR. I decided I would not listen to that, and I would instead embrace silence. I spent 40 days not listening to NPR, which I didn't want to do at the beginning. I wanted to feel in touch, you know, there's nothing wrong with being an educated person who knows about the news. But I gave it up in order to embrace silence. To bring God's holy silence into my home and into my life in an intentional sort of way. That was part of it. The second part of it was I realized that a lot of the time I was spending with my family when the, when the radio was on was time when I was actually not engaging with my kids. I was actually thinking about and focusing on what the radio was saying instead of focusing on my family and the people that were in my life. And so I thought, you know, during this Lent I want to rehabituate my loves. I want to refocus my life on God and my family. I want to feel what it's like to have silence in my life. And so for that whole Lent, I I never turned the radio on when I was in the car. And it changed my life. I now no longer listen I enjoy NPR, but I don't listen to it in the morning. There is much more silence in my home, and I find much more of a sense of peace and much less of a sense of anxiety and nervousness. So um, the practice of engaging in a Lenten discipline, as Dr. Smith is reminding us, is a practice of intentionally doing something you don't want to do in order to reformulate your love. On page 64, Dr. Smith reminds us that the formation of children and the formation of children's habits is an important part of what parents do, but it's also an important part of what the church does. He writes this in the, there's a little um, bracketed part. He says, every child raised in the church and in a Christian home has the opportunity to be immersed in kingdom indexed habit forming practices from birth. This is why intentionality about the formation of children is itself a gift of the Spirit. It's also why carelessness and inattention to the deformative power of cultural liturgies can have such long-lasting effects. The plasticity of children's habits and imaginations is an opportunity for us and a challenge. I think it's really important, particularly for all, any of us who have children in the household, to be thinking intentionally, not only about our own habits, but how the shape of our household is influencing and shaping the habits of our children. You know, it's often thought in monastic life, The um, Benedict in uh, his rule said that the monastery is a school for holiness. And for a number of years now, Meg and I have thought about our home as a school for holiness. You know, at a school, they think very carefully about how are the classes going to be organized and what is the curriculum going to be doing. But I think too often uh, it's easy for parents to just be going through the day filled with all sorts of busyness in their life and to not really think about the home and its rhythms are instilling habits and hungers and tastes Into our children's lives, and those habits will shape their lives for for their life to come. So, going back to my NPR analogy, part of what I think I was subtly saying to my children while I listened to NPR all day was the news outside is really more important than the conversation I'm having with you. And what I wanted to do was shift that in terms of saying, God is the center of this household, and you, my children are the most important people in this house and in this world. And that's not easy when we're busy and sometimes we're tired and just to turn on the radio or watch something on Netflix is a great way to kind of tune out, zone out, relax. But I don't want my children to learn that as a habit. I don't want to have that for myself. And so we've got to shift our loves and our habits in order to more uh, recalibrate our hearts, focused on true north, the love of God and the love of my family need to be something that is really engaged in my household. Not just something I talk about, but something that, act, that is actually embodied in the way I live. Over on page 67, Dr. Smith reminds us that the way God works in our lives is not just through the extraordinary outside external influences but through our ordinary habits. He says, too often we look for the spirit in the extraordinary when God has promised to be present in the ordinary. We look for God in the fresh and novel and new as if God's grace were always an event when God has promised that his spirit faithfully attends the ordinary means of grace in the word and at the table. Later on in the page, he says, God meets us where we are. In order to encounter God, we don't need it to be new and flashy, but rather God is present, that still small voice of God is present in our lives every day. God is speaking to us in the people that we meet and in the ways that we live. And so it's really important that we not allow our habits to be so formed by the outside ways of this world that we, in fact, um, lose touch with the ways God is speaking to us. If in my house I am listening to NPR all the time, there is simply no room for silence. And it is in that silence when God may be speaking to me. And then Dr. Smith digs into uh, an in-depth conversation about worship in the Christian church, and how that is uh, sometimes being co-opted by our culture. So join me in episode five, when we'll talk about the liturgies of the church, and how those ancient forms of liturgy can shape our hearts and point our desires in the direction of the God who created us and loves us. My name is Michael burkle And thank you for joining me on The Simply Christian Life.